0: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. In the summer of 1918, hoping to somehow re-engage the Russian Empire into the First World War, As the Allied offensive on the Western Front commenced, thousands of troops from Allied nations began to land in ports in Russia's far north, far east, and far south. It was the beginning of one of the most ambitious military ventures of the 20th century. Following the armistice with Germany in November 1918, Allied forces in Russia not only remained, but expanded. Eventually, 180,000 troops from 15 different countries would participate. As either a means of bringing Russia back into the war or strangling the Bolshevik regime in its crib, the intervention was a failure and quickly forgotten in those nations who had participated. But there was a long-cherished memory in the Soviet Union that arguably stoked global turmoil for decades to come, and it remains firmly a part of the pick-and-mix, might-is-right narrative of Vladimir Putin's Russia. Anna Reid was the key correspondent for the economist of the Daily Telegraph in the mid-1990s. She has since written about Ukraine for Foreign Affairs, The Observer, and The Times Literary Supplement. Her books include The Shaman's Coat, A Native History of Siberia, Leningrad, The Epic Siege of World War II, and Borderland, A Journey Through the History of Ukraine. Her most recent book is A Nasty Little War, The Western Intervention into the Russian Civil War, which is the subject of our conversation today. Anna Reed, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you very much indeed for having me on.
0: So we should begin with sort of the prologue, at least, I guess, as the Allies are thinking about it, not the Bolsheviks. Um, what did the collapse of the Tsarist regime and the collapse of the Russian Eastern, uh, well, their Western Front, uh, what did that do to the Allied fears and anxieties about the Great War or what was going on the West on our Western Front?
1: Well, you, you you gave a beautiful digest just then of the intervention as a whole. Um, but to, to backtrack to the beginning, the, the the Bolsheviks come to power in November 1917 to everybody's surprise, including most Russians, and they, they um they immediately start peace talks with Germany, and this is a disaster for Russia's allies because. Although the Russian army had been starting to fray under the, the this provisional government which replaced Nicholas II after his abdication, um and which the the Bolsheviks had thrown out, uh you know, there were still hopes that 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 somehow the either the Russian army could be pulled together again and the Eastern Front could be re-energized. And when Lenin and Trotsky actually start uh, negotiations with Germany, um, this is you know this is a disaster because not only will the Eastern, Eastern Front cease to be and German troops will be able to be, divisions will be able to be transferred west, but but potentially Germany has access to Ukrainian coal and grain and to, to Baltic flax and timber. And even worse, there's the possibility that the Bolsheviks might hand over to them these large stocks of military supplies, which the Allies have been sending to the Tsarist armies and which are still sitting in various ports in Murmansk and Archangel up in the north on the um, Arctic and White Seas and in in Vladivostok on the Pacific. And so the Allies' first concern um, is to secure those ports. And the very first landing, so the, the very, very first sort of baby steps in the intervention are small parties of marines going ashore just to sort of guard those warehouses and generally keep an eye on things
0: so the it's interesting when you reflect on the german the germans invented nothing new in the second war um the first war was they had their eastern their eastern sort of plan was to get hold of the grain of poland and ukraine and feed the Reich and feed the armies and win the war. And that's sort of they repeat that. Hitler repeats that in the Second World War. Um, and so all of a sudden with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, all those dreams have been instantiated. It's possible to do that. It's possible then also to turn all those armies and win a decisive victory in France. So this is the sort of the nightmare that the Allied command is facing.
1: Yes, though I don't think the Kaiser's war aims were ever quite the same as Hitler's, and I don't think he, you know, he didn't have the same sort of untermensch sort of ideology.
0: There's no genocidal, but there's always the there's always the appeal of of, of the wheat of Ukraine, the natural resources as fueling a you know an under undernourished uh, unagriculturally provided. I don't know, if my words are mixed up. Uh, Germany, there's yes, always that true. possibility,
1: yeah. Yeah. and and um, they don't. He doesn't have this dream of a sort of, you know, of great sort of Reich in the East in the same way that Hitler ha- had right from the beginning. I um, it was more that there was a power vacuum, you know, the sort of Russian government is collapsing, um, and and it, there's this, you know, there's an opportunity presents itself. But you're absolutely right. The German army occupies Ukraine and the Baltics, and it starts um, it starts sending food west to its to its own people and its own armies and but it's not but in other ways paradoxically actually german occupation is is a bit of a respite for the local populations uh, because they bring order back um, at least at least the cities where you know the great the requisitioning isn't going on and sort of life returns slightly to normal and it's after the armistice when they all those german and austrian troops are withdrawn that Ukraine collapses into this really vicious civil war.
0: We're going to get to that. Uh, But what's also interesting to think about is is that at first they were trying to seize the stores. At some point, they must have had this idea that they were going to drag Russia back into the war and uh, uh, reestablish the Russian offensive to keep some German troops tied down in the east. There must have been a way in which they didn't take the Bolsheviks very seriously. they only took them seriously as a German plot to remove Russia from the war, which in fact that is sort of why they let Lenin through Germany um, but they they must have been diminishing the importance of the Bolsheviks as Bolsheviks and thinking only of them as german tools
1: you're, you're absolutely right. mainstream opinion was that they were they were German tools they were German puppets, but the Allied representatives on the ground who had subsequently had to do with them. I mean, it wasn't the ambassadors because we didn't have diplomatic relations. So they were to, these junior guys and unofficial representatives, um, who sort of stayed state stayed in Petersburg. And then they moved to Moscow when the capital moved, and they built up good relations with Lenin and Trotsky, who were obviously keen to butter them up. Because they wanted to stop the Allies landing in force. They they were sort of always holding out this little carrot, this possibility that um, they themselves might turn on the Germans, you know, renege on their peace agreement, peace deal with the Germans and, and, and start fighting them again. Um, so there was that sort of strand, diplomatic strand going on. But at the same time, through 1918, you've got these anti Bolshevik governments declaring themselves all around the peripheries of the old Russian Empire and they sort of span the political spectrum from the very conservative like the volunteer army in the south um, of you know et- wars headed by former Tsarist generals to rival revolutionaries um, to the socialist revolutionaries uh, who are basically the revolutionary party of the countryside and one the elections to, to a constituent assembly, which the Bolsheviks immediately broke up you know, at the end of 1917. And so we don't really care who comes to power. Uh, the, for the sure. Allies, we, it could be any of these groups, as long as they overthrow Lenin and Trotsky and start fighting Germany again. You know, our, our mm-hmm. overwhelming priority is Germany. We don't really care what happens in Russia, as long as Russia, the Russian armies are rebuilt and start fighting the Germans again.
0: So who's in charge? I mean, who's directing the Allied intervention? Let's just start with the North, with Ar- the Archangel Force. So you say the Marines come on board from ships, they guard the warehouses, but soon more troops arrive. And I noted with astonishment that there's a group of, it's an American, or the sort of the, the healthy pit the healthy of it is about 3,000 Americans, a brigade or so of Americans. But they have a British general. And this is kind of astonishing, given the sensitivities on the Western Front, of Pershing vis-a-vis uh, uh, Phil Marshall Haig uh, regarding American troops under British command. I mean, Wilson famously never called, never called it himself an allied power. We're co-belligerents, I believe is his term. So how did this how did this happen? This seems like it's all being scraped together and thrown against the wall <laughs> uh, and, and catch as catch can to mix all the metaphors.
1: <laughs> well, um, to go back a little bit, you know, politically... America was always the most reluctant of the of the interventionists. So the, you know, the fiercest anti-Bolsheviks were the were the French, you know, under under Prime Minister Clemenceau, and um, partly because uh, they were the ones who felt the most acute sense of betrayal at Russia doing making peace with Germany. You know, so France was large chunk of France was still occupied. It had lost hundreds of thousands of its young men, and and also the Revolution had been a great economic blow to France because Trotsky had announced that he was not going to be honouring Tsarist era government bonds, and and French small savers had put a lot of money into them. So, people, you know, large swathe of the sort of, of of the of the middle class had lost all their savings at a at a blow, and so you know, the, the French government had always been sort of cheerleaders. Um, that the least, but the uh, sort of Lloyd George was somewhere sort of in between. Um, but the least keen was Wilson, um, who, of course, had stayed out of the, the First World War for as, as long as he could and had been burned by the, his incursion into Mexico in his first term. You know, he had seen how interventions into other people's civil wars could go wrong. And what changed his mind um, was this extraordinary and unexpected event the Czech Rising. So You'd had about fifty thousand Czech and Slovak soldiers, mostly ex-prisoners of war, had been fighting in the Russian armies, in the Russian Tsarist armies, against Germany and as against they saw as they saw it, their Austrian, you know, Austrian overlords, their Austrian imperial oppressors. And then, when the Russian army starts to collapse, they stick to their units, they stick to their trains, they remain armed, and their first priority, that um, that sort of their wish is to get back to Europe and, re- and join in the possible liberation of Czechoslovakia. They can't go westwards. They can't take the short route home because Germany, the war is still going on and Germany and Austria are in the way. So what they do is they they go east. They, they set off along the Trans-Siberian Railway in their trains um, to Vladivostok, towards Vladivostok, where they hope to take ship and sail all the way home. Um, and as and we're talking now sort of early spring 1918, and as they're trundling along, the, they're all spread out along the Trans-Siberian Railway, mm. and they come up against more and more obstructionism from these little Red militias who control most of the railway towns. And tr- what what happens in May is that Trotsky actually orders the, so- the little Soviet governments along these little towns to disarm the Czechs and break them up and conscript them into his nascent red army the cheks absolutely <laughs> good luck with that the Czechs <laughs> having none of that Czechs knock over in short order um these little these little scratch militias um take control and take control by july of 1918 they've taken control of the entire you know 5000 mile length of the trans siberian it's absolutely extraordinary it's, this is this is the, the main crazy- Yeah, it's 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 one of the craziest stories of the yeah 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 it's the great sort of geostrategic you know sort of
0: artery of
1: of of northern Asia. So we can uh, imagine
0: uh, this this little Czech principality republic that stretches five thousand miles long and like a mile wide, all the way through Asia to Europe.
1: Exactly, and that's it, and they. You know, the, the the Western press big it up. They love this story. You know, it's a sort of you know it's a good news story at this you know very tough moment in the in the war, and they call it the Roman Republic, the Rolling Republic. You know, it's the Rolling Republic <laughs> of Czechoslovakia, and it has a, an, a and it has a natural appeal, of course, to Wilson. You know, the, the Czechs are one of his sort of gallant, small, self defining
0: nations. They have excellent lobbyists in, in Pittsburgh, actually. Uh, we talked about that in our previous conversation. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, that's one of the connections here.
1: Exactly. Thomas Masaryk, the the, the Czech yeah. um, leader, the leader of the national movement, you know, he tours the States, uh, gives lots of you know great events in Carnegie Hall and rallies and meets Wilson and um, is generally fated, does a great job. And – The the other factor, of course, the practical one, that that the Czechs now control Vladivostok. So if American troops are landed there, they're sure of a a welcome. So in July, Wilson finally agrees to join in the intervention and to send troops to the north and to Siberia. And yep, in the north, he agrees that they'll come under British command. I think largely because the British were established there already. and this does, yeah, it leads to sort of ongoing resentment, um, you know, as as this sort of military military sort of expedition really gets underway, uh, and it's partly it's partly some sort of natural um, American resentment at you know British British high command being British. It's also because uh, the the American contingent are essentially. Civilians, you know, in uniform. They've had a few weeks training back home. They've been sent over uh, to Europe, told they're going to be fighting the Kaiser, and then they find themselves fighting as they see it to restore the sort of bloodstained autocratic czar. And mm-hmm. the, the the Brits and the French, and on the right. other hand, are all they're, they're B category troops. They're they're guys who've been in been on the Western Front, um, and they are. Uh, so not, not, not that their, their, their fitness is not good. You know they've been gassed, or they're con- you know they're convalescing from injury, um, or whatever. And but on the other hand, they're you know they're seasoned, they're hardened troops. They know what warfare is all about. And so you have this sort of. So what happens is, it's Ironside, the British general in, in command, he he uses these unkeen but fit young, uh,
0: Michiganders because they were they were all thought they were all thought to be lumberjacks but they were all like Detroit assembly line workers but they were, the the idea was they were all hardened northwoods seasoned northwoods professionals which they were.
1: Exactly that was the idea. These were Mid- midwesterners <laughs> from Michigan they were going to be yeah. used to this intense cold they'd be fine. Um, in yeah. fact they were sort of car workers from Detroit. Uh, you know they were city boys. So that so for them it this was this was, um, you know, all entirely new—the business of sort of camping out in the in the woods in deep snow. And, it, but, 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 but they're, they're they're green and they're unkeen, but they're young and fit. And so Ironside uses them; he uses the Americans to, you know, to 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 do the the bulk of the actual fighting. So it's them he sends down the down the railway line south, uh, and down the River Dvina and its tributaries southeast. We-
0: can we talk about Ironside for a little bit? Because I think just the other day on the podcast I uh, compared something to a John Buchan novel. Ironside actually is a character in John Buchan novels. He's the prototype of Richard Hannay. So he's tall, bluff, keen, and also sort of disguising a very clever mind, um, and also good with languages.
1: He's he was he is a great character. Um, he and Bucken had got to know each other in South Africa, uh, and yeah, he is Buchan said specifically, yes, he he was the model, you know, in part for for Richard Hannay, his sort of, you know, this very sort of bluff, stiff upper lip sort of era defining, you know, hero of his thrillers. And he he, he was he was this, he was a man men sort of loved to mythologize. He was enormous. He was really tall, six foot six, he, six foot six. He sticks out above everybody else in all the photos and he was sort of correspondingly broad and to, <laughs> he wasn't he was a decent linguist it was slightly exaggerated how good he was at yeah, him, how right. good his russian was because we hit russians say oh he wasn't bad you know he knew a few words
0: <laughs> you well, know, He it was wasn't, a six li- it was a six
1: language <laughs> but you know <laughs> on, 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 on languages in the sort of british um, sort of officers of the era. I mean, what really impressed me was they would drop into, you know, everybody had served in the Indian Army, they'd all drop into Hindustani to each other when they suspected their communications were being intercepted. Not mm-hmm. <laughs> something exactly. we could do now. <laughs> um, mm. but, uh, but anyway, so I I yeah, what I was really lucky to um uh, to 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 be able to look at was Ironside's diary, which is with his grandson, um, you know, the present Lord Ironside. Uh, and and he and his wife they were they were incredibly kind and had you know it was it, it had had me had me um over to their house in the country and and just set me up in their sort of garden room uh, with all the relevant volumes and lots of cups of tea and slices of cake and I was able to uh, sort of read and photograph um it, it all which was totally fascinating and they've they've actually been kind enough now to give it to King's College London so it's now it's now in it, properly archived and being digitised and all that.
0: One of these people with a compulsive diary diary need. So he wrote in his diary as every night as often as he could.
1: He he did. He was it was his first sort of senior independent command. He wasn't yet forty even, and he used he found himself in rather a lonely position. You know there was nobody he could confide in, and he used his diary. You know as people do as his as his confidant, and he. He, he so he wrote at length every night. Mostly, uh, he, he was very he didn't sort of unbutton emotionally much. I mean, he didn't talk at all about family back home. Uh, but he used his diary to sort of think out all the you know all his work problems, all his professional problems, and you know to think through difficult decisions and also to vent um, at what he saw as his sort of useless American, French, and Russian colleagues he he really didn't suffer fools you know he was extremely blunt um so yeah i i mean I, I drew on it a good deal and his his language as well is lovely it's a lovely period stuff i'm mean, like a lot of those those officer diaries you know there's lots of lots of great scott and he's a blackguard, and um you know my hat all this kind of thing
0: <laughs> what's well, also interesting is is that i mean in the this is a uh, Doughboys who are very suspicious of British officers and think them all toffs and aristocrats. They love Ironside. The squaddies love Ironside. For all I know, the poilus love Ironside. I mean, he's really he is a soldier's officer.
1: He absolutely is. So they they dislike most of British command, um, yeah, yeah. and they they resent the British in general because you know they see them as having been given you know soft swivel du- swivel chair duties was the phrase in the rear. Yeah. But Ironside goes to the front all the time. He loves going to the front. Uh, you know, he's always one of those people. who's absolutely determined to see things for himself. Um, and he, you know, he's, he's sort of he's evidently professional. You know, he's a real details man. He takes enormous care to make sure that, you know the supplies come through and the sort of barracks and blockhouses are properly built and all that kind of thing. And he and he remembers everybody's names. Um, you know, he takes proper troubles to that. And you get lots and lots of examples of this. Um, you know, people people ordin- ordinary um, you know, American infantry sort of saying, Yeah, this guy Ironside came to visit us today, and you know, he did seem quite good and, you know, um big guy. <laughs> he reminds me of Boxer so and so. There was a, a, a famous boxer of the time who several people I've forgotten his name, who several people oh, Jack, compare him to. So Jack he's Dempsey, I would say. Wasn't there somebody else? Because I remember that. But but anyway, he's um, he's generally he's generally
0: liked and admired. Yeah. Yeah. So we should say, what is the front? Who are they fighting? And you know, this is this all just within a few miles of Archangel? Are they just trying to preserve the port? I mean, what's the goal?
1: Well, straight away, um, in still back in you know summer of nineteen eighteen. The Bolsheviks send trains full of sort of Red Guards, so you know, these scratch, you can't really call it the Red Army yet, you know, these sort of scratch troops, um, sort of you know, factory workers with rifles really, up the railway line uh to Archangel, um, to, to, to try and to, to hang on to it, or sort of chuck well, to try and chuck the British out. And that they are repelled quite easily. Um but well, hang on. Do you want me to jump on to post armistice now, or have we jumped on to post armistice already?
0: Well, well, I think we are. Let's let's go let's go through post armistice briefly, and then we want to go south to uh, the to the Caspian.
1: Um. So shall I? Uh, okay. Um. You don't want to talk about how the armistice, or do we think we know that the armistice changes the calculation.
0: Well, do, I mean, let's let's talk about the armistice. How does the? I mean, by because with the armistice, there's no. Longer any pretense that um, you can somehow. You, there's no need to get Russia back into the war. So, exactly. um, so then why not just leave? I mean, what's what's the point then? Exactly. The the, the original rationale for um,
1: the intervention dissolves with with Germany's defeat, and but a new rationale emerges, and that is you know, it, that is preventing revolution at home. I mean it seems extraordinary now, but there were genuine fears on the right that that the revolution would spread west, um, and there'd be sort of major popular ins- insurrections at home. Um, and people saw the sort of trouble brewing in India and in Ireland, um, you know, the strikes of railway workers and miners and so on, you know, the and the, and the riots, the demobilization riots that broke out in army camps in France and Britain. And a big strike movement in the States as well, of course. Um, They saw this as connected. They saw this as all one big revolutionary plot directed from Moscow.
0: It is interesting. I mean, uh, everyone's a conspiracist. I mean, obviously, the Bolsheviks are literally conspiracists. Uh, They conspire together and they have a conspiratorial view of the entire how the world works. Uh, We've got the rise of these German and and Russian anti-Semites. You see the Jew behind everything. And then in America and Britain and France, everyone sees everything that's going on is connect the dots, uh, know what time it is. You see everything is being directed by either the Jew or by the Bolshevik, which are kind of the same thing.
1: That's right. I mean, that that is the opinion on the right. I mean opinion is yeah. divided. So at the same time, you know, with 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 the end of the war against Germany, you have a hands off Russia movement. Is also born in in the states and and in Britain with you know sort of big right. uh, demos in New York, big rallies in the Albert Hall, lots of uh, sort of big big names um, from the world of the arts and so on join it. Uh, but it's it's conservative opinion that wins out, and instead of being well, in fact in the north you couldn't have withdrawn the troops straight away anyway because Archangel's frozen. You have to wait for the spring thaw. Um, yeah. But in, instead of plans being drawn up to immediately withdraw everybody, and, you know, as soon as possible, uh, you actually get um, it, the intervention expands. So new, new forces are sent down to the south to aid the Denikin and his volunteer army in Ukraine. And of course, that's possible because now that, you know, the Allies have sent the squadrons into the Black Sea, they can now do that. They've got control of the Black Sea. Um, and again, you also have the same in the Baltic. You've now, you know, the Baltic is suddenly open again. And so you, so you get a squadron helping helping the, the whites and also the various national armies. So let me, the
0: let's count this up. We've got the Northern intervention in Archangel. We've got an invention in the Caspian Sea, which we probably won't be able to get to, but which is fascinating. And we've got, you know, other literary connection. This actually is a, a Kipling, literally a Kipling character is commanded there, but that only lasts for a month or two. We've got Vladivostok. So those are the three original things around the periphery. Now to this, following the armistice, by the spring of 1919, we've got allied units in the Ukraine. And then we've got the Baltics. And then we've got this kind of scratch, weird, cobbled together thing with Germans in the Baltics. So uh, it's... It's an, it, it's getting crazier. It's getting more complex, not less, as time you've goes got, on. You've
1: got you've got five different five different theaters. Um,
0: yeah, and at, and, and, at and, stage, and of course yeah. the eastern theater basically is from Vladivostok, really along the entire what Manchurian Mongolian border to Lake uh, to Lake Baikal or, and and beyond, I suppose.
1: Yes, uh, it the yeah, well, all the way to all
0: the way to Western Siberia. Yeah,
1: where where yeah, okay. where the where the White leader um, Admiral Kolchak has his has
0: his headquarters at Omsk. So this is it, it's it's confusing. Let's talk a little bit about the East uh, because we have a very it seems the one I think he's described by one person as the only honorable man in the uh, in the intervention, which is this uh, an American general that no American has ever heard of. <laughs>
1: he's 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 something of a hero in my in my book um he's called William Graves and he had in 1918 he had been preparing to take command of a division in France um which he was you know eagerly preparing to do this um this was going to be you know the pinnacle of his career and he is then summoned to go meet um Newton Baker, the uh, head of the Department of Defence, and he is told, no, sorry, your French command is cancelled. You're going to go off to Siberia. And he's extremely disappointed, and even more so when he opens his orders, which is the extremely vague uh, sort of general um, Justification for the intervention, which Wilson had put together in July, something called the July the Seventh Ed Memoir, and it's an incredibly short, vague, contradictory document which doesn't explain what the purposes of the intervention were, or even who exactly they would be supporting or fighting. It's all about sort of loyal Russians and ensuring stability and helping the Czechs. You know, it's it's, a, it's an it's it's an incredibly evasive. Document. And in Graves' accounts, at least, he had no more specific orders. And he actually, nor was it explained to him what the situation was, the political situation was in, in, in Siberia. And he arrived there with sort of completely ignorant as to quite what he was supposed to be doing. Anyway, he interpreted uh, this sort of lack of orders as basically a sort of tacit. Um, instructions to do as little as possible to stay as disengaged as possible you know America was really only doing it at all to keep the allies happy and he should keep his troops out of fighting and that's what he does uh, subsequently however um, he is the Americans are sort of allotted a good chunk of the Trans-Siberian to to guard and that brings them subsequently into frequent clashes um, with the with Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks of raids and ambushes, but also with this rogue white general, a, a Japanese protégé um, called Semyonov, who is, he's a warlord, basically. He's a really vicious um, sort of psychopathic warlord who roams up and down the sort of Russian-Chinese borderlands, um, sort of massacring and and, and 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 raping and
0: all the all the usual you've just mentioned another nation so japan is involved in this so we should, should try to tote them up there are forces out of line of livestock. we've got the americans we've got a scrap a sort of a small group of british i guess taken from india or chinese um posts yeah that'd be uh, in hong, hong kong, kong and yeah. so on. Hong- we've got um, we've got japanese um, we'll get back to them i guess we've got the Czechs, of course We've got a group of Canadians uh who uh according to your account are addicted to ice hockey and vernieral disease, which is sick. <laughs> Which is I, I hadn't I hadn't seen I knew about the first, but I hadn't seen the second one coming. Um twenty five I just want to say to Canadian listeners, twenty-five percent of the casualties in the hospital are Canadian VD sufferers, which is which is sad. <laughs> um we've also got an anti-Semitic Red Cross doctor from Japan who's quite clever about public health things like conquering typhus. It's um it's quite a mixture
1: it's quite a mixture um so, you know the canadians go again quickly they that they, there's the canadians didn't want to be sent um and they there was a mutiny as they were being marched down to their troop ships in victoria bc
0: a canadian mutiny is one of the great well, you would you would think is one of the great oxymorons of uh, of of the language but there it is Stadium mutinies.
1: It was a group of French-Canadian
0: farmers who had been oh, conscripted,
1: wanted to be demobilised. Um, they'd already been petitioning for demobilisation to go and, um, you know, rescue their farms. And they refused orders. They simply sort of stopped on a street corner as though being marched down to the docks and said, we're not going to go any further. You know, on y va pas, Siberia. <laughs> and there was, there was a punch up. Um, and in the end, English-speaking Canadians sort of whipped them aboard was the phrase they took off their belts and whipped them aboard and they and the, and these mutineers were um then sort of you know put in the hold and 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 sort of taken in chains off to Siberia the Canadian government then insists that you know they can see that this is gonna lead to dreadful' it be immensely unpopular at home and they um say we'll we're going to just they could just do garrison duties in vladivostok. We're not going to send them to the front to join, you know, off west down the Trans-Iberian to do any actual fighting. And and we're going to remove them again in the spring. And and that's what happens. Um, And there's lots of sniffy, sniffy sort of diplomatic back and forth about that. Um, But but the interesting thing, I mean, Graves, he is what he's really explicit about. um, I mean, all of them are, but he he's particularly outspoken is the tension. Between the allies and their white Russian partners you know who they're they're, they're there to support and yeah, the, the, there's tension there from the start you know broadly speaking uh we see our Russian colleagues as sort of reactionary disorganized sort of drunk lazy corrupt, and they see us. As arrogant, you know condescending, ignorant, naive, and everybody's right, all these things are true <laughs> and and so personal relations there are some genu- you know some friendships are formed, but in general, personal relations between these sort of, you know at all levels between the officers are, are pretty scratchy. Um, there's a sort of impatience on one side and um, resentment on the other. And they get worse, of course, as, as the, as the um, white cause begins to fail. You know, each side blaming the other. And Graves absolutely loathed his Russian counterparts. And unlike the British generals, he did not turn a blind eye to their atrocities, to their sort of village burnings, um, to their sort of violent conscription methods, mass um, executions, mass executions of prisoners. And so on. Um, it's all that's all skated over in the British diaries and memoirs, just occasional, very sort of um, read between the lines allusions. Whereas, Germ- uh, whereas Graves lays it all out. You know, he he receives deputations of peasants who complaining at at white violence, uh, and he receives you know sort of the wives of a sort of sort of you know sort of social democrat style. Um, some newspaper editors and local uh, um, politicians and so on in Vladivostok um, who come and petition him to get their husbands released from jail and he he he, he loathes the Russians more and more. Um, it's interesting I should say one, one thing about Graves is he didn't, as far as I know, he didn't write a diary or not one that's, that survived. So with, with lots of the others, I was able to compare the memoir, which is often very wise in hindsight, um, with the diary of the time, which is often much more actually committed to the white cause. With Graves, I couldn't. You only got the memoir. So it may be that if you looked at, uh, you know, if you had Graves' diary and saw what he was actually thinking at the time, um, you know, things wouldn't have been quite so clear to him at that stage. But
0: he. He's writing pretty scathing memos and you know dispatches though about He at is, home. Yeah. So that, yeah, yeah, he is. He is. He is. He is. I mean, um, unlike unlike a lot of the you know birdie roosterish, everything's fine. It's going to all work out. Stuff that you get from some of the some of the British aides in the same place at the same time. That's true.
1: Yeah, it, it, that's true. Um, you've got a there's quite an interesting um, divide sort of within. All these officers between the people who are, you know, they're all—all all of them are regular soldiers. They're all professional um, army men. But there's a divide between the ones who are ideally, ideologically committed, who you know themselves fear revolution and think that what they're doing in going to Russia is sort of helping save the world they know back home. Um, which, uh, but uh, but the majority. Are not like that at all. They're just there because the war with Germany is over and they want to carry on fighting to earn some more, you know, promotion points.
0: Um, you know, it's just they're yeah. sort of
1: carrying on with their keep, jobs. Keep, and, keep
0: their promotion that they've gotten. A lot of them have been, a lot of them are afraid that they're like a colonel. They're afraid of going back down to captain or even lieutenant. Exactly.
1: Um, Lots of people had temporary posts. Um, so so, go off and do some, you know, put in some more service time in Russia, and you know, you, you hope, hopefully you'll you'll hang on to it. You'll get you'll get the permanent post. Yeah. And um, you know, and they they are they're cynics. You know, they're very um sort of clear eyed about the about the White Russian cause, and they complain pretty much you know straight away on arrival, or, or if not, you know, the scales from that fall yeah. from their eyes very quickly about. Russian disorganization, incompetence, etc.
0: Let's we'll talk about disorganization and incompetence and atrocity in Ukraine. Um, we mentioned Denikin already. know um, uh, yeah, it just it, in this book there is there is no side There, there is no side to root for. <laughs> there is no. I mean, Graves is the one person. Well, Graves and Ironside are like the two people that you think, oh, those are those are, those are all right, um, but. The Ukraine is uh, a tragedy compounded with a tragedy. We, um, I, I forget how many governments that you describe as, as having some sway over some part of the Ukraine in 1919, but I think I counted five. And we've got the, the, the white, the major white force led by Denikin seems to believe that its best way of combating the Bolshevik menace is to conduct lots of pogroms.
1: The pogrom stuff um is the most shocking. So I don't know some of your listeners might have um read Jeffrey Weidlinger's book um called In the Midst of Civilized Europe, which came out last year, I think. Um he's he's at the University of Michigan. And he uh, the, the pogroms of re- were remar- the pogroms of nineteen nineteen were ev- were remarkably well documented because Jewish organizations on the ground at the time um, did a great job of taking witness statements, sort of counting bodies, collecting um, all the relevant documentation and sort of army orders and so on from the various occupying forces. And then they were able to smuggle it out of the country. And it it all ended up, um, most of it ended up, you know, and then it was printed, it was sort of, Edited and published um, in Berlin, and then later on in New York. So it's, it's really you can say that those 1919 pogroms, which are estimated having killed you know directly or indirectly somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 people, um, are the first you know professionally properly documented you know sort of atrocity of history, and the, the, all all the warring sides participated. So the Polish army, the Red Army, the two Ukrainian national armies, a whole bunch of warlords, um, but also the White Army.
0: which So all, all, all of these engage in pogroms?
1: They all engage in pogroms. Um, and the, the White Army was not the worst in, time, in terms of, it's, it's very hard to, to work out. You know who 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 was most guilty? Um, because you know, there's a lot of blaming the other sides going on, and there's a whole sort of bunch of Soviet propaganda laid on top of that. And you know the the, the data are very, you know, the, the data simply aren't there. You, you know, you get people. you know, There's there's lots of Jews flee the, the smaller towns of the pogroms are happening to sort of Kiev and the bigger cities, and maybe die there. You know, in hospital later on, and. Um, you know, it's, it's 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 hard to work out, but um, it's see, it's prob. It, I mean, the worst, the worst were a warlord called Rihoriev and the army, the Ukrainian army under a man called Petlyura, a Ukrainian socialist. But the Whites killed tens of thousands, and that what was people at the time found particularly um, horrible about the White massacres. Was that they were well organized? They were the officer led. Um, you know, they weren't. It wasn't just as the whites were sort of retreating in disorder and troops were getting out of control. You know, the pogroms started as the whites were advancing, advancing towards Moscow, in their great advance of summer of nineteen nineteen. This is somehow part
0: of their strategic strategic objective. This is not, and it, it's it's like a necessary add on to the to going to Moscow.
1: It's well. Jews have traditionally been scapegoated in in Russia, you know, forever. So you know, there were pogroms, and you know, so at, at times of crisis, so there were pogroms in 1881 when Alexander the Second was assassinated, and they were there were pogroms in 1904 to five, and those pro democracy demonstrations. But you know, th- those two waves of violence, it had been more. You know, there had been a, a few killings, but mostly it was people being beaten up and having their Property destroyed, you know shops being vandalized, and nineteen nineteen it's on a totally different scale, you know not seen since the seventeenth century and the what's what what was new to me about it and hadn't been much written about is the way in which the British turned a blind eye. so the British mm. are the last guys left standing by this stage. the French have pulled out.
0: Yeah, we should say the French have, the, the why? Why have the French left? We should we should why have the French lost interest?
1: The French have had to evacuate Odessa in sort of humiliating disorder because Khrihoriev, this warlord, um, took it over, and this and this was caused, you know, sort of political upset back home in Paris. Um, sort of you know blow to Clemenceau and. They did not return. They then switched to supporting the poles instead. They had this cordon sanitaire
0: policy. They they switched to yeah. Friend of the podcast, Joseph Korsunsky. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ah, okay.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know they're, they're um, you know we're not going to manage to overthrow the Reds in in Russia, but we, but what we can do is help build up this this sort of buffer zone of you know cordon sanitaire as it was a medical um metaphor, you know, sort of quarantine zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, is between us and Russia, of these strongs, you know, a strong Poland. So the French are out of the picture. The Americans had never come down, to, had never entered the, you know, been part of the intervention in the south anyway. Apart from, they had some ships in the Black Sea, but they were ferrying refugees and bringing in food aid and so on. They weren't, they weren't fighting. So it's the, it's the Brits, and from Westminster right down to the ground at every level. The British military and political establishment denies um, or minimizes the pogroms they you know they deny that they're happening they you know that these excesses that's the euphemism of the word they say these excesses you know this is all this is all fake news um all they say uh they're exaggerated these reports are being exaggerated uh all they say. Um, You know, all regrettable, these excesses, but Denekin is doing his best to rein his troops in. Unfortunately, they sometimes get out of control, which was totally untrue. You know, he didn't sack anybody. Um, Or or sometimes they victim blame. They say uh, one particular quote. uh, The man says, uh, you know, the, the Jews are bringing the violence upon themselves by their nervous panicking. Their nervous panicking is fanning the violence. And of course, um, amongst the British right in general, you know, a lot of people had taken on the white sort of Jew equals Bolshevik trope. They themselves mm-hmm. believed it. They themselves believed that um, the revolution was a Jewish plot. And you know, it's extraordinary. I mean, It's extraordinary the power that trope had. Um, you know, it, it was absolutely it was true that a lot of the leading Bolsheviks had Jewish heritage. Um, on the other hand, it was you know, that did not mean that every Jew was Bolshevik, and, you know, that, and a, a, a lot of Jews had actually welcomed the Volunteer Army originally and, and tried to join it, and they were they were not allowed to join because they were seen as sort of potential sort of spies and saboteurs. You know, so this obvious, observable fact that you know the Jews in general no more no more wanted revolution than anybody else; they just wanted a return to normal life. Um, you know, it was sort of bounced aside by this by this conspiracy theory, which of course, and, and, and this, you know, the Jewish Stol- Bolshevik idea, it it, excuse, it was it was popular amongst whites because it 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 excused them from examining the real reasons for the why the old system had collapsed so quickly. Um, you know, why why it had been so unpopular and why they were having such difficulty
0: recruiting now to. So, at some point, alas, not because of this, Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, decides to cut his losses. Um, Why and how does he do such a complete turnabout on the question of British intervention in the Russian Civil War? So, Lloyd George has
1: always been ambivalent about intervention. And he puts the whole project um he ha- basically hands the whole project to churchill he promotes churchill back into the cabinet at the end of 1918 and churchill is a passionate anti bolshevik and also wants to recoup his military reputation after the disaster of the dardanelles and you know the Ru- russia is the one remaining uh, sort of theater <laughs> where he can do this and he he becomes the interventions Cheerleader in chief, and the press start calling it, you know, Church- Mr. Churchill's private war. And Lloyd George sort of swings back, and blows hot and cold on it, depending on how well the Whites are doing. You know, when it looks as though they might actually take Petrograd or Moscow, he's he's something enthusiastic, but when um, they have setbacks, he, he 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 blows cool again, and. Towards the end of 1919, you know, it becomes apparent the whites are going to lose and the and the reds are going to stay in power. They have the whites have their military high point in sort of mid October. They get get within 250 miles of Moscow. They get to the outskirts of Petrograd, but thereafter it's all retreats. And Lloyd George then makes this turning point speech in November, at um, the, the Lord Mayor's banquet. It's the first time he's spoken in public on Russia for a good while. And he basically says uh, we we need to get out um, and we need to go back to business as normal with Russia. And okay. what he's concerned about is food prices. Uh, what, what He's concerned about the unpopularity of the whole thing at home, and it's obviously losing, and he wants to... Start importing cheap Russian grain again, and so early the following year, early in 1920, he actually invites. He he basically he sort of faces down the right for whom this is a you know this is an absolute betrayal and you know a, a pact with the devil um, to to sort of recognize in any way the 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 Bolshevik rule in Russia, and he actually invites. Uh, Bolshevik representatives to Downing Street to, to start trade talks. And these trade talks carry on all through 1920 very bumpily uh, because at the same time you know, there's a, la, a sort of white last stand going on in Crimea where again we have military representatives, we're helping a bit with training, sort of. we have a machine gun schools and we're sort of, sort of helping them with radio equipment and all that kind of thing. Um, and so these, these talks go on very bumpily but they end up resulting in a in a inner a deal under which both sides are supposed to not propagandize against the other and particularly the bolsheviks aren't supposed to sort of stir um the revolution in india mm-hmm. and uh, and, the, and the thing is signed early in 1921 and th- we don't give them actual diplomatic recognition but you know it, we've accepted that that the bolsheviks are here to stay they've given them de facto recognition and other other country the rest of europe follows soon soon after america not till the late 20s america actually um america oddly since it, it was the least keen of the interventionists takes takes longer to recognize it soviet doesn't need
0: grain and it, it's under uh, and it has a protectionist president's so, uh, there's no reason why they want either Bolshevik grain or industry. So that makes sense. There's, there's, yes. that, there's that reason. I would, I would have, that was, I, I was wondering the same thing. And I, I think that's my, that's my initial answer, uh, to that. Um, just a question before we, we, we get on to some of the implications of this, which are kind of immense. Um, I, I, realize now, um, after reading the book, what are some of the sources you used? And I, I imagine that they've dried up, or the access to some has, has worsened the last two years. But what are, what are some of the sources that can be used to get at this?
1: Well, I had easy access to lots of British, American, and French sort of diaries and letters, you know, private he- papers held in various archives. Uh, the the um, University of Michigan has a wonderful archive um, with private papers from soldiers who were sent to the north. I, I would have made a trip there had COVID not intervened, but luckily for me, uh, it's, it's, they're digitized and online. And there's there are a lot of, um, I mean, I was equally interested in what the Russians thought of us. So it was, you know, it was what we thought of them, our Russian partners, but also what they thought of us. And there are a lot of white Russian memoirs who are, which were published um, in emigration in the 20s and 30s. Uh, extremely, they, and the, some of them are some of them are very bitter. You know, the the, the West betrayed us. You know, we built rivers of blood for, for for Europe in the First World War, and then they walked out on us in our hour of need. Others are, um, other others are very sort of it, it balanced and intelligent and and witty. Actually, you know, they've got a lovely sort of wry humor to them. And um, quite a lot of quite a lot of. Um, Russians actually found homes in in American colleges, and who ended up as academics in the states. And those are some of those are some of the best memoirs. And so you've you've got you've got plenty um, through sort of interventionist eyes, um, and a good deal through white eyes. Uh, I didn't look. I mean, I didn't do it sort of from the Kremlin. I didn't do the sort of Kremlin politics of it because I reckoned that was. You know it's very well covered in lots of um good books about the civil War as a whole and i right. I was interested just in the intervention and really in sort of in really in sort of seeing Russia as those military um on the ground saw it uh i i can't, i mean I was very lucky the ironside diary I've talked about but um some other uh, sort of descendants as well uh gave gave me diaries um, which are sort of unpublished and not in archives um which i'm which i'm very grateful for As there, on all the diplomatic stuff um I, I, there was i was made good use of a fantastic three volume academic study by a man called Ullman, an American academic I think it was published in the seventies um, which wow. which you know it it's in there is every memo every note um, <laughs> Through the whole thing in three fat volumes. So that was an incredible help, you know, I didn't have to go again over all that
0: ground. It, it um, strikes me that um, it, you just made an essential point that this is not a history of the Russian Civil War. Um, it's the Allied, the Western well, and Japanese, intervention into the Civil War. Um, and I'm bound to ask, did any of this make any difference in the direction of the Russian Civil War? Did it lengthen? Perhaps it certainly didn't stop it. Um, did it lengthen it? Did it prolong it? Um, the Russian Civil War is the crucible from which the Soviet Union is, is, comes. Um, did this intervention affect that?
1: It didn't um you know the, the the numbers of troops we sent were not substantial enough to tip the balance um but it certainly prolonged it because the the white armies you know even with western supplies um were pretty chaotic you know there are endless um pictures of you know men marching through the snow with nothing but footcloths on and these appalling military hospitals with you know people sort of patients you know on the floor on dirty floors in dirty clothes, um you know, lice in their lice in their beards, you know, sort of dying of typhus, you know, terrible medical shortages and so on. But what they did have, um, particularly, particularly in the South, the Dunekans army, you know, came largely from the came largely from the West. So yes, it prolonged it for sure. And we should have got out earlier. I mean we did get out fairly early. I mean we the whole thing only lasted the whole intervention only lasted a a couple of years so you know we didn't we didn't in fact um sort of end up with mission creep uh, to, to, in on a large scale but yeah i mean it, it's it's very easy with hindsight of course um mm-hmm. but but yeah it, it, it was it was a
0: it was a doomed you know idea from the start i'm old enough to remember you know, uh, people who read the Nation, uh, or for that matter, I guess the Morning Star, uh, who would say in the like the mid eighties, late eighties, well, the reason why we've had the Cold War is because we invaded Russia during this, the Russian Civil War. That was really this the rush. This American intervention is the reason why they hate us.
1: Oh, no, um, that,
0: uh, that 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 was a cherished, that was a very cherished uh, talking point of of the Soviet Union throughout its history. Um, um it, and it's it's it lasts, but now I mean, in the last two years, of course, or well, longer, it's it it lives again. You know, this now, is this oh, is sort yes. of, <laughs> all our fault. Yeah, it's oh. all our fault. We did it.
1: Uh, well, I, I, that for me is totally disingenuous. Um, you know, the 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 Soviet Union. First of all, you know, Lenin and Trotsky used political violence from the start. You know, from the off, from the minute they took power. Um, you know, they were not sort of brutalized by by, by the West coming in, uh, and uh, and second, you know, they were explicitly devoted to worldwide revolution. <laughs> they were not, you know, they were they were not uh, they were not going to be normal diplomatic partners in in any world. Um, so, I mean, I think that is utter nonsense. I think you know, Western Soviet relations would have been just as bad without the intervention. So what it did do is make the West more unstable between the wars. It destabilized. So it boosted uh, the left, the far left in Europe. It, I mean, it, gave, it gave them a cause. It gave them a grievance. And actually, you know, for example, um, some of the French sailors who mutinied in Sebastopol in the in the spring of 1919 and forced the French departure um, helped force the French departure.
0: Marty, the guy, the uh, the French uh, French communist commissar who shot lots of communist troops in the Spanish Civil War. I think he even gets a cameo in The Sun Also Rises. It, exactly, indeed, he does. He he features in lots of mem- civil Spanish Civil
1: War yeah. memoirs, and um, he was he was completely paranoid. Um, a, had a crazy edge, and he. So, so he was one of these. He was one of the leaders of this mutiny in Sebastopol When a bunch of French sailors, the sailors actually, they sort of locked their least popular officers in their cabins. They took down the tricolor, um, ran up the red flag on their ships, and a bunch of them even went ashore and joined in a, a, a Bolshevik demonstration. And you know the thing was quelled. They were brought back under control with the help of Greek troops, who actually had to fire on them. And but and then the it was decided this needed to be wound up, and you know they the the fret the, the French ships all quickly depart back to france and you know some of the mutineers all they wanted was demobilization, they just wanted to go home they weren't political but but others were indeed you know they were pro Bolshevik they were revolution they were communists leaving communists um some of that there'd been uh, there was a lot of French language propaganda within the French fleet um spread by a man called Jacques Sadoul. Who <laughs> was he was with the French embassy um, during the revolution, and he completely bought that he, he he gave up. You know, he left his French government service to join the um, you know sort of Kremlin propaganda effort. And so, so, so you've got these you've got these communized um servicemen going back to France. Um, you've got you've got the left. Um, in Britain, you know, up in arms at the whole effort. Ditto in America, and so it so destabilizes in that sense. It also um, it boosts sort of isolationism in the states. Uh, so you know, after, you've got you've got that 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 strand comes to the
0: fore again. A couple of things there. The, the one, one that struck me reading this that in many ways the intervention at least in terms of American-British relations, is like a much longer, bitterer Suez crisis, where uh, the, uh, the result is the British feel beholden and resentful of the Americans for pulling the plug, and the Americans are angry at the sort of colonialist aspirations, as they see it, of, of the British Empire and its persistence. There's, there's a lot of Suez crises kind of feeling, m- mutual resentments and bitterness afterwards. Um, it's also the beginning of the left popular front of no enemies to the left. Um, social democrats don't at this time realize that they're the first for lunch on the Bolshevik menu. If the Bolsheviks take over, they don't know what's happened to social mm-hmm. democrats in and, and Petrograd and Moscow in 1917. They'll learn, but they. But this is that this is the first sort of moment where there's there's a there's sort of a popular front of the left. Um, but then you've also then. Um, and then, but as you say, you've got a. This is, I think, I think American isolationism in, its, in the history of the United States is greatly exaggerated. Um, it occurs in a few discrete points, but this, uh, the 20s, are certainly a moment for that, and it certainly, um, and you can see this in sort of the anti-colonialism of the Roosevelt administration. It's as much a disgust with the bad behavior of the French and the British. As it is about sort of the American misadventures in the First World War and the intervention.
1: Yeah, that's that's very interesting analysis. Um, yeah, that's all that's all absolutely right. And for, uh, from the British point of view, I mean, one important thing, I mean, one important result is that you know it's it's an, it's more damage to Churchill's reputation. So Churchill <clears throat> had absolutely identified himself with the intervention when it fails completely and humiliatingly. Uh, and you know, his his reputation takes a blow and it it it's one of the reasons um that he loses his seat in the 1922 elections and you know and, and later on when he starts calling the alarm re hitler it makes it easier to dismiss him for um the appeasers are able to say you know this guy's a war monger. He's a sort of irresponsible adventurer. Look at the disasters he's led us to in in the Dardanelles and in Russia.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And then when you add this up with the Dardanelles, it's it's not just the Dardanelles. It's not just Gallipoli. It's it's Russia. And the way that it contaminates him with the left, who might be disposed to listen to him on Hitler, uh, this contaminates him with the left. And of course, the fact that he's also then. You know he's he had several posts during those four years. The fact that he also led the negotiations with Michael Collins and the IRA mm-hmm. further, you know, ruins him with the right. So by mm-hmm. 1922, because of all this, his activity, he really it's it's extraordinary that he ever was in politics after afterwards. We haven't mm-hmm. even mentioned his d- disastrous Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, mm-hmm. tenure.
1: It's de- it's definitely held against him.
0: Yeah. Any other, def- any other final thoughts? I, I, you must be thinking, um, as you're writing this, um, seeing all this, the familiar names, uh, which I now know from the headlines, um, and from the, the war news, the weekly, daily, weekly new war news from Ukraine. It's, um, you can see lots of people made reference to say 1941 and 1943, but, uh, uh, the war in Ukraine during the Second World War when referring to the war in Ukraine today, but you can also see 1919. uh, In many ways, 1919, this is a lot of 1919 going on in 2024.
1: Yes. Well, this is um, the point I'm very, very keen to make is that despite the, the fact that again, a century later, we are sending arms to Ukraine, you know, it, 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 the, the fact that the intervention failed then does not mean intervention will fail or is a mistaken policy now. Um, the, the Ukraine-Russia war is not a civil war, and the Ukrainians obviously are not the whites. You know, the the extremely impressive, resourceful and 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 passionately democratic Ukrainians are not the incompetent and reactionary whites um you know my the true heir of of the whites um is Putin, and it's actually an identity he embraces he brought you know obviously he's he's you know adopted lots of czarist symbols, the double headed eagle and so on um, but he also brought back uh the remains of Denikin, the white general denikin who had been died and been buried in the states. He he was brought home a few years ago and, and and reburied with great ceremony in a Moscow monastery, and you know, but but and and Putin and the Whites have been reframed now in the sort of you know the Kremlin narrative, historical narrative as uh, sort of doomed but romantic. You know they they were they were true patriots. Um, they were fighting to defend traditional Russian values against this alien ideology imp- imported from the West. Now the real ways in which Putin is this is an heir of the Whites is you know in all his weaknesses. So it's you know he's grotesquely corrupt like they were. He's he's reactionary um, and repressive. Um, he is also, most importantly, um, you know, he doesn't have a real political program. He doesn't have a real reform program which is actually going to improve lives for ordinary Russians. Uh, and most of all, he cannot accept the legitimacy of stated for the non-Russian nationalities of the old empire. You know, he says again and again, the Ukrainians don't really exist. You know, Ukrainianism is a is a Western inf- invention. You know, the Ukrainian language is just a Russian dialect, the Ukrainians are just a sort of subspecies of Russian. Um, and you know, this is exactly the white attitudes to, to the non-Russian nations. So again and again, the Allies try and get the whites to to, to partner up with the Georgians, the Finns, the Ukrainians, um, the Balts, and whoever, because they realize that, you know if If they can form a coalition, um they will have a good chance of actually beating the Bolsheviks if they can fight together, and the whites reject this out of hand every time uh, you know this this is an insulting suggestion um there's some wonderful quotes so so the the white ambassador to London he says at one point he says, Estonia doesn't have." An intelligentsia you know sort of Estonia is just a piece of Russian soil um or to, to, you know, the suggestion that they should start negotiations with Mannheim you know the Finnish leader they say start talks with with you know Mannheim laying down conditions you'd have thought that little Finland had conquered sort of great Russia <sighs> and, and and so on um, so you know that this is another um you know, this is another way in which sort of, Putin also has failed totally to understand realities. Um, I mean, the other thing which comes through absolutely loud and clear is is you know this long-standing Russian resentment of the West, and you, you know that's that's absolutely the driver between you know Putin-style ultra nationalism. You know, it's this really sort of poisonous sense of sort of grievance that we've been done down, um, it, ugh, and. It, and, and it's there in the White's relations with um, with the Allies back in 1918, 1919 as well. Incredible resentment um, that that they're being told what to do, that, that 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 you know we're not giving them more in the way of supplies, um, that we're sort of lording it over them. You know, it's some, you know, it's exactly the same psychology that are now. I mean, absolutely exactly the same. Um, but what one has to hope, of course, is that Putin will lose for the, you know, for the same reasons the Whites did, because his program is hollow, because it's just reliant on this, um, you know, sort of uh, this sort of empty ultra nationalism based on based on nothing, um, and because he's so corrupt, you know, because you know inequality is so glaring in Russia today, you know, that, that, that at some point Russians will, you know, shed that sort of nationalist ultra-nationalist dream of sort of you know, um, regained glory and see his regime for what it is and turn against him
0: My guest today has been Anna Reid she is the author most recently of A Nasty Little War the Western Intervention into the Russian Civil War Anna Reid thank you for being part of Historically Thinking
1: Thank you very much indeed for having me on it was a great pleasure
0: And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.